0: Welcome back to the program. One of the big things we seem to be missing in politics today is historical and institutional memory. The sense of collegiality, of institutional respect, and the value of public policy seem to have been replaced by gotcha politics, partisan positioning, and an effort to achieve petty political advantage. My guest, former Congressman Barney Frank, has borne witness to this change, and he's seen it from all sides. He helped usher in our renewed respect and acceptance for gays and lesbians in public life and fought in the civil rights battle of our time for gay marriage. He used the best of the public policy apparatus to bring forth financial reform, but he's also seen the ways in which our political process has become mired in a way that is disconnected from the realities of 21st century life. He understands that principles and politics go together and that to legislate is not a dirty word. He shares some of that life experience in his new memoir, Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. It is my pleasure to welcome Barney Frank to the program. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Delight to have you here. One of the things that really seems profound in so many ways in all of the areas that you write about Is some of these tensions and contradictions that you've dealt with over the years. You talk in the 70s about the tension between being an advocate for gay rights but dealing with your own issue and your own coming out. And then you talk about being really a very private person and and the repression that was part of your life early on. And yet you were an insider in many ways, had to be an insider as part of the legislative process. Talk a little bit about those various tensions along the way and how they've shaped your view of politics and, and really what you've accomplished.
1: Well, the biggest one you've noted was the fact that I realized early in my teen years that I was gay, uh, but also that I was uh, in politics. I had some strong views about things I'd like to change in America. In 1954, when I was 14, there was this horrible murder of a black kid my age in, in Mississippi. He was from Chicago. Um, he was just beaten to death and mangled by racists uh, for no reason whatsoever, basically, and um, nobody was doing anything about it. So uh, I thought, gee, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be thought of changing that. And, and then I was watching television. We had a TV set early in my house, and I thought, you know, I'm I'm good at arguing. I'm I had verbal skills, so maybe I could do this. Uh, on the other hand, I realized that being gay was a terrible obstacle. This is 1954. I mean, everybody hated homosexuals. Frankly, we hated ourselves. The notion that there was any prospect that we would get any kind of acceptance. I mean, I was terrified my parents would find out about me, and they were wonderful people. Um, So I then had to figure out, okay, how do I get a career in public life while hiding my private life? And uh, that's the initial view was I would just repress it. Uh, as time went on, it became clear to me that didn't work. It kind of evolved from from, from secrecy, uh, from, from repression to secrecy. And uh, after a while, it just, uh, the tensions between uh, that repressed, secret private life and a public career just got too much. And I said, look, I don't, know, I, I don't know what the consequences will be, but I can't live this way anymore. And I just announced that I was gay
0: to what extent did that repression and those tensions that you talk about shape your view of policy, of government, of what could be accomplished, and the way people should work in, in a political system? Well, first of
1: all, it, uh, uh, as I, uh, you know, for the first well, maybe 15 years of my realizing I was gay, I, it was a hopeless situation. And then in a way that's really uh, almost unique in American life, this, this uh outburst of anger at repression by gay people that happened in New York City in 1969 at the Stonewall Bar. Right. It turned out the public was readier for uh, for dealing with this than we thought. I think what happened was, you know, if you go back to uh, post World War Two America, the, the the horrible, horrible example of how prejudice unchecked could lead to this kind of mass murder. I mean, the, the example of Hitler, I think, gave us the basis for saying to people, look, it's not just anti-Semitism; it's anti any group that can be taken to this terrible extreme. So you then began to get more support for racial equality in America. Then came the rights of women. And and that kind of logically flowed into, well, why should we treat gay people as if they were were monsters? And so it did become clear to me as I first got into politics that, you know what, government can be a way that we can fix this. And as I said, that was, you know, I had originally thought about government as a way to deal with racism. Uh, It became increasingly clear to me that government was, in fact, Uh, potentially the the instrument by which our best instincts could could be made real, that that, uh, uh, there were things that we could do if we all did them together, and that was called uh, government. I also, however, began to see progress, and this may be paradoxical. It made me tell many of the other gay and lesbian people I was working with and others who were trying to make big social change, you can't do that all at once. I wish you could. But if there's some great evil that you are confronting in a society, It didn't get there by accident. It's there because it represents some some social realities. And to get rid of it, you've got to be sensible, smart, and disciplined. And don't expect to get it done all at once. And if you think you can just make it go away all at once, you're going to lead to frustration and disappointment.
0: One of the things that, that is so remarkable in conflating all of these issues is looking at the progress that has happened, particularly of late in Indiana and, and similar situations notwithstanding, the progress that has been made in the gay rights area and lining it up against the, the area of race and seeing how f- much faster progress has been made in the issue of gay rights. Talk about that.
1: That's an area where I have very mixed emotions. I go back to 2013 in one successive two-day period the Supreme Court threw out the Defense of Marriage Act, which said that the federal government would not honor the marriages that same-sex couples were allowed to have in the states. And, and the Supreme Court said that's just unacceptable. But at the same time, uh, a five-to-four majority—it was five-to-four in the one case—one justice switched, Justice Kennedy, and basically eviscerated the Voting Rights Act, which had been passed in uh, 1965. People may have seen recently the, the, the documentaries in the history because it was the 50th anniversary of the Selma. Uh, massacre brutality that that helped bring that about, and uh, cut back on on that. So here's the paradox: legally, we do have full uh, equality for uh, black people. There's no legal basis on which you can discriminate against black people. You still can discriminate in employment in many states against uh, LGBT people, but attitudinally. Uh, we have done much better at getting rid of anti-LGBT prejudice than, than racism. I think part of it is just a, a factor of human nature. Um, every straight, well, let's put it this way, uh, every gay person has straight relatives. Mm-hmm. Most of us have straight parents. We have straight siblings. We have straight doctors and patients and coworkers, et etc., et cetera. Unfortunately, because of segregation and the nature of it, Most African-Americans do not have the kind of close relationships with white people that LGBT people have with straight people. And that has given us a chance to kind of undermine the prejudice that has not worked as well in the racial area.
0: What does that tell us in a larger sense? Because I think that there are some powerful lessons there about how we relate to each other, how we understand each other, how we're going to accomplish anything, either in a social context or a legislative context.
1: Uh, obviously it 's a central question, and part of it is it's human nature is a is a mixed bag uh, people have good instincts and they have uh, bad instincts uh, and there is a degree of of uh relating to yourself of of, of uh from you know there are some very selfless people people who just work for others without a lot of thought about who they are or their own benefit or their own families but they 're very rare and you don 't win you don 't win in a society with that unusual group in fact. You know, the encouraging thing to me from the LGBT standpoint about uh, the, the uh, Indiana situation is that, yeah, for a long time we've had the people on our side fighting discrimination who, who care about moral principles, but in Indiana what happened was the cavalry arrived on the scene in the form of the business community, and the business community said, look, this is not, we're not talking here mostly about morality, we want to make money, we want to have a, a, a productive economy. And if you keep insisting that we get involved in bigotry and that we discriminate in our business, you're interfering with our business. Stop that. And I think, frankly, that's that's the beginning of the end for the for the discrimination. To some extent, that happened in in, in uh, the race area as well. For example, in uh, in many parts of the country, uh, the business community told the bigots that they had to knock off this resistance in uh, in the segregation area. But uh, that's the point I'm making. You win in America, not simply by the people who are morally committed to helping others, but when people realize they have a self-interest. And uh, it was easier for us to demonstrate the self-interest in the, uh, in the LGBT case than in the race case. The other thing is this, look, well, prejudice based on sexual orientation has been forever. Um, it, people didn't, it, it didn't get deep, root, deep roots because we were hiding um, racial feelings, you start with with slavery in America from the 17th century uh, to the middle of the 19th century. And then you have 100 years of official segregation. The notion that African Americans should be treated fully equally is fairly new in the 300-plus years of, of white people on this continent. And that has unfortunately dug roots that are hard to uphold.
0: The other sort of new prejudice that's an overlay to this, and it really relates to politics and a lot of the things that you talk about in the book is classism and, and how we look at poor people today.
1: That's a good point. And of course, given the historic nature of racism and the uh, way in which blacks were treated, uh, there is an overlay, that, not an overlay, a, a significant overlap between race and class differences that doesn't happen with LGBT people. Uh, gay people would have faced discrimination if we told who we were. We, gay people, have been on the whole able to duck the consequences of of being relegated to a lower economic class, to a poorer group, by hiding who we were. Uh, lesbians as women had a little bit more of a problem, but still, it was not not terrible. Race, on the other hand, because of segregation and poor education and all the terrible conditions that so many black people had to live in, yeah, there was an economic element. If you look at uh, if if you were to look at uh, differences in America by economic status, and then you looked at race and you looked at uh, LGBT status, you would find significant uh, correlation between uh, lower economic status and race, and none with regard to LGBT people, and that's another reason why we have been able to make more progress in terms of attitudes.
0: One of the things... You know, give
1: let me just give you one example. It's a, sure. a, you know, sometimes people don't like to talk about these things, but we still have a situation in much of America, shamefully where there would be resistance to black people moving into a neighborhood. The opposite is true with regard to gay people. People <laughs>
0: right. have now decided
1: that they want to have gay people in there, we but we'll fix up the house and we won't send any kids to school. Uh, that's just a very clear example of how the economic perceptions uh, work.
0: I want to come back to what you were talking about with respect to the business community responding to Indiana and similar situations. What does that tell us from your political perspective? And you've been watching politics on, on both sides of the aisle for a long time. What does this reaction from the business community tell us about the splits and the problems inherent in the Republican Party today?
1: Oh, that's a perfect question. I'm hoping, frankly, it it, it augurs a lot. Um, I have been frustrated for a while, and I've argued this to some of the business community, some of the people in the financial community. They said to them, "Look, well, you don't agree with this anti-gay stuff. You don't agree with making abortion illegal. Um, you, you don't agree with the uh, uh, the the, the attacks on the president as if he was uh, not really an American citizen." There's a, a whole set of attitudes, and includes, by the way, some economic attitudes. Uh, you know, when, when, when we had the crisis in Europe. Uh, which was hurting America. The, we, we were recovering from the financial crisis, but we sell a to Europe. And if Europe is in, in economic trouble, that's a lag on American economy. So we were part of an effort with the uh, Federal Reserve and the International Monetary Fund to respond to Europe's troubles. The right wingers with an isolationist approach: "Oh no, don't help them." The business community knew that was trouble: shutting down the government, not paying the raising the debt limit. Those are all things that were bad for business. Unfortunately, until fairly recently, the business community has gotten so angry at us, particularly the one I know the best, the financial community. They used to, in 2008, they split their money. They gave more to Republicans than the Democrats, but they wanted to sort of be friends with both, and they agreed with us on some issues and the Republicans on others. And then, frankly, came our financial reform, of which I'm very proud. Our response to the crisis that was caused by the business community's irresponsibility, and they get so angry at us. Now they give all their money to the Republicans, and I've said to some of them, "Gee, you're supporting these people who disagree with you on all these other issues." And until recently, they said, "Yeah, in effect, but this—you, know, you guys hurt our feelings, and you want to tax us, and you want to interfere with our ability to make money." But I think the right wing has finally gone too far. And uh, the, the attacks on the Federal Reserve have made the business community nervous. And finally, I think the business community, too many of them, just felt personally uncomfortable at being uh, part of an alliance that was so so bigoted and so prejudiced. But it's also the case, and as I said, this is this helps even more than morality. It is now clear that the extremism of the Tea Party and the right wing of the Republican Party is very inefficient economically. Refusing to raise the debt limit hurt the American economy. Uh, attacking any ability of the Federal Reserve to respond hurts the American economy. And uh, telling the business community, here's what the business community is saying to these people, look, you want to discriminate in your private life, go ahead, we don't care. But don't tell me, as a businessman, that I have to pick and choose between two things. First of all, I, I, I discriminate against gay people, and then a lot of people will be angry at me. Or else I refuse to use the right you're giving me that I don't want to discriminate against gay people. And then you'll be mad at me. So it's a very important – it's the first time I've seen many elements in the business community say to the right wing, hey, thank you for keeping my taxes low. I'm glad you want to undo all that financial regulation. But we can't go along with all this other stuff.
0: It's interesting, though, that it is happening at precisely the same time that the left within the Democratic Party, the the really anti-business left – is in ascendancy and may drive away this opportunity for rapprochement between Democrats and the business community.
1: Well, that's a very good point, but it could go both ways. Um, that is, um, I think what the business community, if they're smart, will say, is, you know what, we better try and find some allies on the Democratic side. And it's going to be a lot harder for the business community. I, I think the, the, I think they have more of the problem here than, than, than we do, which is if I were they, I would say, well, wait a minute. Uh, We have a hard enough time trying to deal with some of these uh, insistences that there be further regulation. Uh, We better find some allies. And uh, one way to do that would be to drop this opposition with the right wing on the other side. And I'm hopeful that dynamic plays out, that the business community decides, wait a minute, we we better show some of these people on the Democratic Party that we're not not their complete enemies. Um, And uh, as far as the... uh, driving them away i i guess i'm obviously a strong supporter of financial reform and there are areas where i want to toughen it i'd like to raise taxes but i don't think if you look at the reality that what we're talking about is nearly as threatening to them as uh, some some people on the right would portray it so i i understand that's a perfectly good question about that interaction uh, and i hadn't really fully thought about it until you raised it i thank you for for, for that but i believe if this is done right it becomes uh, an argument to the business community that if they want to work with people in the Democratic Party who understand the importance of the private sector and who who want more regulation and some some higher taxes in some ways, but recognize their legitimate needs, that we may be able to uh, make a deal. And I would say this is particularly the case, some of the people on the left in the Democratic Party, in my judgment, unwisely joining in an effort to denounce the Federal Reserve. The main reason the right wing doesn't like the Federal Reserve is that it's become a great liberal institution. Uh, they have intervened for the past mm-hmm. few years, beginning with George Bush's appointee, Ben Bernanke, to try and alleviate unemployment. And uh, I think that it's easy for some of the left and the Democratic Party have a kind of a cultural lag. They think Alan Greenspan is still running <laughs> the place. So I think we can make an alliance with the business community to preserve the role of the Federal Reserve System, which has been very helpful
0: one of the other things that i want to talk to you about is something that you're certainly known for and something that it's so hard to find in the political process today and that is the ability to bring humor to the process you know you look at even the campaign in, in its emergent state right now and even local campaigns and you know yes it's serious business yes people take themselves seriously but we seem to have lost except for those that that engage in satire on the outside any kind of humor and really congeniality inside the political process?
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. First of all, I, I want to be honest. Um, I was I, I lucky to have been born with a good sense of humor. I have some strengths and weaknesses. I was born with a terrible sense of direction. I have no great mechanical skills. I have been in a lifelong war with inanimate objects, and, and, and they're winning. <laughs> uh, I break things. I can't figure out how to open them. I just flew here uh, to Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, uh, I had to ask the uh, flight attendant twice to help me figure out how to turn on the TV screen in and the, and, and the seat. But I'm, I've been able to think of funny things to say. First of all, that keeps me sane. I have a low boredom threshold. If I couldn't think of funny things, I'd probably never pay attention. Secondly, it's very effective if you use it right, and it's this again, I keep talking about paradoxes. It, it can be an effective weapon, but also ingratiating. And what I try to do is, yes, I try to make fun of other people's ideas, but never their personalities. If you start mocking people's personal characteristics, they get very angry, as they should. But if you make their ideas seem kind of silly, and many people lend themselves to that by being inconsistent and hypocritical. And one of the things I find that's helpful to me in debates, one of the other things I was blessed with was a very good memory. I can remember when people made an argument four months ago that's exactly the opposite of the argument they're making today, because... Would serve their their substantive purpose better, and so making fun of people that way, of their ideas, is very helpful in part because, you know, there's this welter of information that you're trying to get people's attention for, and if you can make something funny, then likely to remember it. Plus, people don't really like to have people laugh at them. On the other hand. Uh, and I've tried to do this. I try to make fun of myself as well. That's one of the best political weapons, the best way to ingratiate yourself. Um, I, I think I, I, I poke fun of myself as much as anybody else. And that does promote a kind of collegiality and people who laugh at themselves. Uh, that's an element of likability, which is very important in the legislative process.
0: It does seem to be partisan in its nature. It's harder to find on the right than it is on the left, that sense of self-deprecation.
1: No, it isn't. It's, look, there used to be more... Uh, equity between the two conservative and liberal parties, because each one, uh, the Democrats believed more in the importance of the public sector, the Republicans of the private wealth-creating sector, but each one recognized that the other sector was important. For the first time in, I think, American history, you have a group in charge of one of the major parties today, the Tea Party control of the Republicans, and they really, they're out of balance. They, They think the private sector can do everything, and they really do not appreciate the importance of government in, in much of what we do, and they also become very personal and angry about it. Uh, they, they don't, and this frankly goes back to Newt Gingrich, and his, he was in Congress in the 90s. He said, "You know what? We Republicans have to stop treating the Democrats as reasonable people with whom we disagree. They're bad people. They're evil. They're immoral. They're corrupt." And and you can document changes back from then. And then the Tea Party takes it a step further. Of course, the Democrats respond in kind because you can't have unilateral disarmament in a, in a struggle. And uh, that's where we are.
0: How do we begin to walk that back? How do we begin to move in, into a, a post-Gingrich era?
1: That's up to the voters. You know, um, and it's particularly, frankly, uh, I feel a little bit impotent about this. It's up to the Republican voters and primaries. The problem has been that the kind of Republicans who were interested in cooperating began to lose out. Look, you can go back and date this to 2008. In 2008, in September, George Bush comes to the Democratic majority in the Congress and says the economy's falling apart. Now, we can fight about whose fault it was. I think it was clearly the fault of their policies of not regulating effectively, although some of that goes back to uh, President Clinton. But uh, we responded. The Democrats gave George Bush more cooperation. You can read this in the books by... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Hank Paulson, who was the Republican Secretary of the Treasury, I think you're going to see it in the book that's probably com- that, that I know is coming out from f- former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. Um, we responded and we helped out with uh, with with what was uh, with what was happening. Then Barack Obama takes office, and the Republicans never gave him the kind of cooperation that we gave to George Bush, and that's when things begin to uh, deteriorate. But also, what happened was this. Republicans, paradoxically, Republican conservatives who supported George Bush's request to take action to keep the economy from totally collapsing, in the next election cycles were defeated. There was a man named Robert Bennett, a very distinguished Mm -hmm. conservative from Utah. Uh, His father had been the governor and the senator, uh, kind of one of the the ruling families of Utah. When he ran for re-election to the Senate in 2010, he couldn't even get on the ballot. The Republican convention repudiated him uh... senator k bailey hutchinson from texas again a very distinguished figure she decided to run for governor of texas they called her k bailout hutchinson in other words republicans started losing because they cooperated with george bush and what happened was the uh... the the republican primary electorate turned to the right and uh... you know people you've, you've heard about people talking about the base well the base are the people who vote in primaries. I mean, the fact is that, and I blame the average citizen. The average citizen doesn't vote in primaries. That means that American politics is dominated by people who got elected in primary elections, which is an American peculiarity. Most countries don't have them. uh, By the most ideologically militant people in their parties. And the Republican ideological militants have gone further to the right than the Democrats have to the left. And so that's what you get. You get You get Republican members of Congress who themselves are people who would have liked to cooperate, but they're afraid of getting beaten in primaries. Uh, one thing, uh, example, with regard to the immigration bill, Senator Rubio just announced, he was one for president, he was one of the eight senators, four and four, Democratic and Republican, who put together an immigration bill a few years ago. He has now announced that that bill was a mistake because it is so disliked by the people who dominate the Republican primary, they had to back away from it. You're seeing this with, with other Republicans. They, they are now having to move all to the right. It's what hurt Mitt Romney, frankly, and benefited the Democrats, because he had these primary opponents, and he had to move to the right to deal with a Rick Santorum or a Newt Gingrich or uh, those other people, or Mike Huckabee. And by the time he was through persuading the right wing Republicans that he was, as he oddly said, quote, severely conservative, unquote, as if it was a disease. Um, <laughs> He had a hard time winning votes in November.
0: It's really a really fascinating conundrum that you have as a result of the fact that people will say virtually anything. I mean, Dick Cheney blaming you for the financial crisis is is a classic example of that.
1: Yeah, I I, I have to I did not I, I have to explain to him I did not choose to read Dick Cheney's memoir or buy it, um, but uh, you know I hope liberals and. Others will buy my memoir. I don't expect Dick Cheney to buy mine either. (laughs) But I was in the uh, offices of the Huffington Post, and I I saw a copy of his memoir, and I gave what uh, we call a Washington read. A Washington read is when you pick up a book about politics or economics, and you go to the index and look for your name, uh, which I did in Cheney's book. And I found his reference to me, and he said, In 2003, our administration tried to get legislation passed to reform Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But Financial Services Committee Chairman Barney Frank killed it. The point is that I was not the chairman of the Financial Services Committee in 2003. The Republicans were in the majority. I was in the minority. And uh, the Republican majority leader at that time was a man named Tom DeLay, called the hammer. Uh, he was not in the habit of listening to me. Uh, if I was really calling the shots, we wouldn't have had a war in Iraq, and we wouldn't have cut taxes for the very wealthy. Um, In fact, what happens is that it's under the Republicans that no bill is adopted and that the administration's bill wasn't even considered by the committee at first. And it's not until 2007, four years later, when the elections have changed hands in Congress and I become chairman of the committee, that I do pass the bill. So uh, I felt very angry, frankly, that Cheney had just lied about what I was doing in 2003 so he could blame me. But then I realized I, I couldn't get so angry because it gave me a very rare distinction. Uh, Having Dick Cheney lie about me with regard to 2003 put me in in, in very interesting company. It it put me in the same category as an Iraqi weapon of mass destruction.
0: Barney Frank, his book is Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. Do you miss the political fray?
1: I don't. Um, I do speak out on issues. I wish, there's one issue, I wish I I was there. I'm a great admirer of President Obama. I think he was doing the right thing. I think he is being pressed and giving it a little too much to send troops back into Iraq and Afghanistan. We did our best there. We shouldn't have tried even in Iraq. We can't, by American military, make decent societies out of countries where people are determined to hate each other and fight each other and have religious differences become shooting wars. But in general, no, I was just burnt out. My emotions, I couldn't take it anymore. Um the phone would ring during those last couple of years, and I would flinch. It was, oh, God, what now? What 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 new problem did I have to get into? And it was particularly the case, you know, for four of my last six years, I was chairman of this committee. And first, we had to cope with a financial crisis and try and keep it from, from, from collapsing the economy. And then for two years, a very challenging, interesting, rewarding, but very hard job of trying to get, overcome the resistance of the financial community to adopt a set of rules that would allow them to do what they should be doing and stop them from doing what they shouldn't be doing. So by the end, I was just emotionally exhausted, and and, uh, there's no way I could even contemplate uh, staying on.
0: Congressman Barty Frank, the book is Frank. I thank you so much for spending time with us, Congressman. Much appreciated.
1: I appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank
0: Thank you. you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.